your state, your team, your show. This is Sports Nightly. Adrian gets the snap, holds it, looks, sets, throws, pass, caught, on the first down. Gets on the 20, 15, shoots the defender, 10, 5, touchdown, Nebraska. Juan Dale Robinson's first touchdown as a Cornhusker. Now, let's check the pulse of Husker Nation with your hosts, Greg Sharp and Tim Curran. Yep, we're here. Thank you so much for being there, listening to us here tonight on the program, and a lot to get to. Over the next couple of hours, this hour, we're going to have our weekly Husker huddle with Jeremiah Searle sitting down with former Nebraska quarterback Tommy Armstrong. We'll continue our trip around the Big Ten, brought to you by Sinclair Oil. We'll check in on the Fighting Illini, see what's happening in Champaign as they get ready for another season under the tutelage of Lovey Smith. We start with some of the headlines that Josh had in the ticker at the top of the hour. And, Tim, we finally have a conference schedule. Uh, at least the ACC has put out who's playing who. They didn't give you dates and that kind of thing. But uh, they've added Notre Dame for the 2020 season. So I guess the big headline is the Irish, at least for this fall, going to be a part of a conference. <laughs> Notre Dame finally joined a conference, and all it took was a global pandemic. Um, I guess it's only for a season. But, uh, hey, I, that is kind of interesting. I, like I was, I think Ben might have made this point a few weeks ago. I really had no sympathy for the Irish, but now they've snuck in a conference. Okay, whatever. I mean, it, it is what it is. But it is a really interesting thing. I mean, it's kind of a radical notion. I know it's only for this season, and this is obviously a season that is already was going to be weird no matter what. But they completely eliminated the divisions. And now it's just going to be the top two teams uh, who get selected to the conference championship game. And I know Bill Moose had expressed that at terms of the Big Ten, he still wants to see priority given to divisions. And so now the ACC has set this format, and you kind of wonder where the Big Ten follow. The other thing, though, that the Big Ten really can't do, or at least can't do for most teams, is they the ACC has it open for some of those the extra non-con game where they can play an in-state opponent like Georgia and Georgia Tech. Um, but, you know, Nebraska, obviously, unless they're going to plan on playing Doan, uh, doesn't really have that option available to them. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I think that we're going to see how it'll work out. I'm not sure. I'm sure there might be some potential pitfalls um, that, that that this might have opened up. But, you know, I'm 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 open to, to this type of format. I'm, I'm curious to see how the elimination division is going to play out in Notre Dame joining the conference i'm not super excited about that i kind of wish they had they had been punished <laughs> by by refusing to join one all these years but hey it is what it is you know a couple of big things you said there one doing away with divisions which is a little odd and i understand they've got 15 with notre dame being in there now so i get i get i guess why that happens and that's why i don't think it's going to happen in the big 10 i don't think the big 10 is going to do that because they're not adding somebody they're not adding a wild card to the mix at the end of this thing and we've been hearing for a while that the acc and the sec want to protect those rivalry games the florida florida states the georgia georgia techs the clemson the south carolina so we've been hearing for a while that they wanted to do that now the sec apparently is preparing three different options for their presidents to go over in the coming days. One is a conference only. One is a very similar 10 plus one or nine plus one deal where they do protect a rivalry game. Uh, So we'll see. And the third one is just a, um, Go as is. Don't change anything. Leave everything that's on your schedule and try to play all the teams that you have made arrangements with. So those are the three options 
that the SEC is preparing for their presidents and chancellors to go and vote on. Now, the, the Big Ten does have a conference call scheduled for tomorrow. They have been doing that on Thursdays throughout the summer, so this is not anything new. So whether we get news on the Big Ten front tomorrow, I don't know. We could. I think there's always a possibility if they have a plan in front of them and they like it and they approve it, that we could find out some scheduling news in the next 24 hours for the Big Ten Conference. And I know everybody's anxious uh, to hear all of that and to see what it looks like, who we're going to play, when we're going to play. Obviously, uh, who are we adding from the East to get to 10 games? Uh, Those are all questions everybody has about this upcoming schedule. But, Tim, I don't see the Big Ten doing away with divisions and saying we're going to let the top two teams just play in our championship game. I I don't see the Big Ten going down that path. Right, yeah, there's no independent sitting around waiting to be added to the conference unless, I don't know, is Western Kentucky still independent? Do they want to join? <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't see that happening. So, yeah, you're probably right about that. But in terms of the schedule being released, I think it's about time. I mean, fall camp is supposed to start relatively soon here. I know for the ACC next they're week. starting next week. And so yeah. you're really getting kind of at a point where it's imperative that you at least release something. Now, I know a lot of this season is just going to be kind of flying by the seat of your pants, lots of adjustments, last-minute changes. And so I can understand wanting to sit on this for a little bit. But we're getting to that point. It's the end of July and all we really kind of need and we're asking for is just a little bit more clarity, a little bit more transparency, just be up front, say, hey, this is the plan for now. And if it has to change due to other unprecedented or unforeseen circumstances, okay, fine. But I'd at least like to see something because right now we're just kind of going on a lot of guesses. But as you mentioned, Greg, I would imagine that a decision is coming pretty soon here and the ACC has already made theirs. The ACC's first game, they did say this. I mentioned they didn't lay out dates and that thing, but it's going to be on, on Labor Day. On September the 7th is when they want to have their first conference games and then later in the week maybe have a Thursday night game, which would actually go opposite the NFL opener between the Chiefs and the Texans on that Thursday night on the 10th of September. But they're not going to open on the 5th. This goes against what the Big 12 came out and did last week when you had both KU and Oklahoma schedule games for the last Saturday of August. The NCAA yesterday did approve that and said, we're okay with that. We're okay with more teams starting early if you want to do that. What that does, and and maybe the Big 10 wants to try that as well. I don't know. We're not really hearing a whole lot. But if they do, they got to get practice started because you're absolutely right, Tim. As it sits right now, if it's a September 5th start, the first practice is August the 7th. Well, if they're going to give the go-ahead for teams to play at the end of August, they need to start like tomorrow or Friday to, to get in all the number of practices before first game. Absolutely. And I can't really imagine, I mean, what the coaching staff is going through. I mean, think about all the stuff you have to install and, and, and stuff you have to get kind of brush up on. And especially when your spring camp got cut in half yeah. or maybe you didn't have one at all. So there's a lot of teams here who haven't really had a lot of time and often haven't been able to even been in the same room with their guys to try and get this everyone on the same page. And so when you've got a major, major Division One, uh, you know, football team to, to try and organize and structure practices and you're kind of still – you don't know even who you're going to play even – uh, and it could be only a month away. It's kind of it's it's kind of incredible, and I understand that you know this is everyone's been dealt a bad card. I mean, the, the each conference is is there. No one's ever dealt with anything like this before, and so this is all new to everyone. So I can be sympathetic to a point, but as you mentioned, I mean, this has to happen sooner rather than later. You can't just kick the can down the road another couple of weeks and say mm, we'll see, we'll see. It's like well, if this is going to start in late August or September 
decisions have to be made like yesterday, and they they still aren't being made in the most conferences. Unless it's not, right? Unless it's right. not going to start until late September, and we've heard that. We've heard the Pac-12 kind of say the 19th of September, maybe the 26th. So if you're going that direction, you, you still have time. You don't have to make a decision. If you're going to come out and say, we're not starting on time, we're going to push it back a few weeks and hope that uh, the infection rate around the country goes down some, we get closer to a vaccine, we get closer to treatments, whatever it may be, that, that's still an option on the table. The ACC, it's not, because they've come out and said they're going to start on September the 7th with their first game, and we should learn more about that as we move on. Also, we're almost a week into the OTAs. Those started last Friday for college football teams where they could spend up to 20 hours a week with their coaches. So we're almost a full week into that, and that even includes some time out on the practice field. In fact, you might have seen on social media yesterday a couple of pictures of Adrian Martinez and Luke McCaffrey out on the Husker practice field, green jerseys on, throwing the football around a little bit. So some of that has been going on now for the last five days. All right, Josh's other item in the ticker was Major League Baseball's decision on Joe Kelly that uh, who threw behind two Astro batters last night, Alex Bregman, who was a Hickman Harrier, so how dare he throw up my Hickman Harrier. Uh, and, <laughs> and then it was also Carlos Correa, and then verbal altercations, and both teams poured out of the dugout and pointed fingers and did all that. But Major League Baseball, and I know they're trying to send a message, Tim, that they want this thing to stop. Everybody's still mad at the Astros for banging on the trash can up the up the runway into their clubhouse to cheat for the last couple of years. I get it. I understand people are still steamed by that. But an eight-game suspension? If, that, if this was a normal 162-game schedule, that would equate to 20-some games. There's no way that's going to hold up. Right. The eight games, when I first saw that figure, that definitely raised my, my eyebrows a little bit because I thought that's a bit extreme. But you're right. I think there's a couple things like this. It, it It's frustrating because the, the very first mistake Major League Baseball made was not punishing individual players for their involvement in the cheating scandal. And I thought this is where a lot of this frustration is boiled over. Now you have Joe Kelly, who kind of took this vigilante justice approach where he's, you know, the protagonist of a Western and there's no law, so he's going to take it into his own hands. He starts whizzing 95-mile-an-hour fastballs past Carlos Correa's head. And so you uh, you understand that this can't happen every game. If Carlos Correa's you, – you don't want to see his cranium get busted in two over this. So uh, the ideal situation is Major League Baseball months ago should have handed down individual punishments for guys who had involvement in this scandal. Well, now you have a bunch of players who are teed for good reason. And even though Joe Kelly, I know it's a little bit weird because he wasn't actually on that Dodgers team that, that was involved in this. But it's still, it's you, you as a player, you have the right to be angry given the integrity of the sport. But eight games is a bit much. And this is a situation, too, where I think if you're Major League Baseball, you can... I don't know, write a strongly worded letter. I don't know if that's <laughs> would be the most – that probably wouldn't set the tone MLB would want, but you just have to – you have to set down each player, each team, and say, hey, listen, we understand your frustrations, but you can't put these guys' safety directly at risk by trying to beat them every game. I mean, that just can't be – that just can't happen over a 60-game schedule. So it's ups- – I understand why people are frustrated, and the Astros really got off very lightly, I believe, in this whole situation, which is why the players and the fans are mad. But eight games is a bit too much, but, but Joe Kelly, please don't try and kill <laughs> Carlos Correa with a 99-mile-hour fastball. He, he will appeal it. Um, he'll get it reduced. He'll, he'll, they'll drop it at two or three games. And maybe message has been maybe has been sent. Other players in baseball go, all right, enough of this. Maybe we plunk a guy every now and then, but you can't throw behind a guy like that. So 
My guess is it'll all, everybody's freaking out about the eight games. He won't serve eight games. He's already appealed it. It'll get it'll get watered down. Those things always do. So we'll, we'll continue to follow it. Uh, you know, the Astros are still on, on and they're on everybody's enemy list and everybody's clubhouse. They all are still mad about the Astros part in their cheating a couple years ago. Welcome back to another episode of Husker Huddle presented by Sap Brothers. I'm your host, Jeremiah Searles, and at Sap Brothers, they say, welcome, be our guest. Today, our guest is Tommy Armstrong, former Nebraska quarterback, current arena quarterback for the Sioux City Falls Storm, if I am getting that correct. So we're excited to have him here. We're excited to have him join us. Tommy, how have you been? I've been doing great, brother. Uh, no, it's, it's always a great day to get outside to uh this pandemic and stuff like that. So, uh, you know, me and you've been working out a few days a week. Uh, other than that, just been trying to uh, stay sane. Uh, yeah. Make sure I'm yeah. able to get through this this whole year without going crazy. I feel you on that, man. It's It's been wild. It's been tough. But I know you were gearing up and getting ready to start your season. I mean, arena football was supposed to start up in, I believe, a couple months ago, correct? Yes, uh, in April. In April, so... Yeah, so April, we're supposed to kick this thing off. You were training hard and ready to go, and then all of a sudden the brakes get put on it. So what have you kind of been up to since then? How have you been staying ready? I mean, mentally, physically? I mean, you kind of had to do a full system reset there. Yeah, definitely. Um, just trying to get out, do stuff, uh, make money just to, um, you know, put food on the table and things like that, help the wife with uh, bills and things like that. So uh, arena ball doesn't pay a lot, but at the same time, it gets your exposure. So um, being three di- three days away from my first game, uh, going to three weeks of uh, camp, that really hit us pretty hard. Uh, we're game prepping, getting ready for walkthroughs and things like that. Then the coach calls everybody up and says, uh, we probably won't have a season this year. We'll postpone the season for four weeks. Uh, so I had to come home, you know, uh, get back in shape, uh, sign back for next year. So now I'm looking at seven months of just uh, – basically the off season most people only see it about three or four months of off season but now looking at six to seven months of off season so it's just getting out there trying to stay in shape like i said we've been working out three times mm-hmm. a week uh i throw with coach dub and uh guys like alonzo moore and uh dp and uh stan and seathan um just because they're in the off season as well but uh, they have a report coming up here in the next couple of days so they just hit the road uh actually today um and just trying to stay out, stay um, outside, uh, you know, being inside basically makes you go crazy here and there. You just got to get some fresh air. So been I've been on the golf course here and there, and um, me and the wife actually going to the driving range this afternoon just to hit some balls, just get out the house. That's awesome, man. I mean, as far as before all this happened, you had a really good you had a really good thing going up there. I mean, you had a really good rookie year your first year. I know you had a really good second year. Talk us a little bit about what arena ball was like for you. Did you enjoy it? I mean, you sure looked like you were having fun out there. Yeah, I enjoyed it. It's a uh, it's different. Uh, feels a little smaller. Uh, you're looking at 55 yards uh, long and 25 yards uh, wide, so that cuts it in half. Basically, you're looking at every decision that you have to make is a lot faster. It's kind of like the CFL, but basically just a shorter field. You could be in a game where you're down 28 points with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter, and you can come back within two or three minutes just because of how fast tempo, how fast-paced the game is, and how quickly you can score. So that's something that I enjoy just because um, the fast tempo, you, you 
seen people run 70 plays in the NFL. You, you yourself, it's all about just, uh, you know, making smart decisions. But when it comes to the IFL, it's more of just making sure you can score points. You can win games 75 to 73 or 82 to 60. Uh, it just all depends on how many times you're out there, how many times you can score. You can score in five seconds. You can score in two minutes, three minutes. Just about ball control and being able to just throw on spots and things like that. My first year, uh, my rookie year, was actually probably my toughest year going into the first couple of games. Um, you know, we had some bumps and bruises as a, as a team, but overall, I think uh, I improved uh, throughout the year just because I learned that it's all about decision making and just throwing on time, definitely with a smaller field, um, just making poor decision as a quarterback. And I ended up winning rookie of the year that, that year. And uh, going into this year, it was going to be my second year. Um, I actually went up to Sioux Falls from Grand Island because their team folded. So I was looking forward to playing for Coach Riggs and that organization was competing for the job. So I ended up playing the first week, so I was looking forward to it, and got cut short on us. Yeah, I mean, I think I think we'll we'll hopefully get a chance to see you back out on the football field next year and doing your thing, Tommy, because you're you're a great talent. You're a great talent here in Nebraska, and we know that you're going to continue to keep grinding it out. I mean, I know your work ethic is next to none there, so we're excited for you there. Let's switch gears a little bit here. Talk a little Husker football. I mean, you were you're not super far removed from this program. Um, you've been removed for about three years now. And you've got a chance to kind of sit back and, and watch it as a fan then, and which is almost harder to do than watching than actually playing it. But have you actually had a chance to really sit back, reflect on what your career and what you were able to do here? And what are some key moments that really stand out for you through your career here at Nebraska? Um, honestly, just uh, being able to be so resilient throughout those tough times, definitely. Um, we had that conversation a couple of days ago. The fact that just uh, – how much I progressed through my freshman year of having an O-line that was basically all NFL guys and just, uh, if you could say it, just 4.0, A-plus <laughs> all across the board. You guys uh, teaching me as much as you, you guys could throughout those eight or nine games that I was starting. It, um, it helped me a lot. And I tell you, you guys that all the time that I really appreciate that just because it helped me grow into the person that I was my senior year. Just um, seeing how much you guys worked, your work ethic, how much uh, you wanted your guys to believe in the front five. And um, that's what I took out of just playing my freshman year to my senior year was no matter what the situation was I wanted my guys to look at me and say, hey, you know, this guy is actually giving it their all or his all. And um, that's what I've, I've learned throughout the time that I was a quarterback was just if you can, you know, just put it all on, out on the line for your teammates, for your brothers. Um, like Coach Bo always say, you know, look to your left and your right. You have to, you know, play for those guys to your left mm -hmm. and your right because at the end of the day, when you're out on that field, that's all that, that you have, you know, of course, our fan base is incredible, but once you're out, it's all about game of inches. And that guy that's been going through off season and summer workouts with you is the guy that that's out there. And I've learned so much from that. Just having you guys as offensive line, having freshmen offensive line, and young guys like that, just being able to see how they looked at me as a leader, as a guy that always worked hard, no matter through injuries and things like that. It's just how do you want to be remembered at the end of the day? And um, 
just looking at that Nebraska team, it's, it's a lot of guys that, you know, I've talked to that just, you know, they just want to get out there and teach those guys the right way and basically uh, paved the way for them to be successful in the future. Yeah, I mean, you know what it's like to be the quarterback in Nebraska. It, it's tough. I mean, you are the focal point when it comes to everything. The offense going well, it's because of you. And it, even if it's not, if the offense doing bad, it's definitely because of the quarterback. And it is a tough position. I mean, you see Adrian now going into year three. I think year three, and, and you could correct me if I'm wrong, as a starter, year three is where things really start to slow down for you. I mean, year one, you're kind of pure, playing off pure adrenaline still, which I think Adrian did a little bit. Year two, you kind of think you have it figured out, and then you get hit in the face a little bit and realize you don't. And then year three is kind of where you put it all together. Going into year three here, what would your advice be? And I'm sure you probably actually maybe even talked to him for a guy like Adrian Martinez, who had a tough year last year, but is looking to bounce back, looking to have that breakout season that we know he's capable of. What are, what are kind of your thoughts on quarterback Adrian Martinez and also maybe some on Luke McCaffrey? Um, just both of those guys are, are huge competitors. I've seen, you know, their work ethic. Um, Luke is a guy that's, um, for the fan base is just a, a fresh face, um, just a fresh new guy that, you know, they've, you know, basically, you know, talked about for so long and seen, you know, some Spurgeons here and there, how well he can, he can play. Mm -hmm. And Adrian, on the other hand, he's a, a two-year starter going into his third year. For me, I was a two-year starter and going into my third year, the more I got comfortable with the offense, then I had a coaching change, which basically drew me back to year one. And, and, you know, that's basically for him. I wanted to touch bases on that because this is his third year in this offense, his third year with this coaching staff. So it should be a lot easier. And I think one thing that he has to understand that I had to understand my second year going into my third was you have playmakers, you have guys that can ball you have to trust in them mm. to make decisions and and put you in the right situation um for me i thought that i could do everything and i could just you know win games for for us i could put everything on my back and say hey look i got it if things go wrong it's on me if things go right you know i was gonna be the guy that you know made sure that i put everybody in position but at a certain point in time you got to realize like all you have to do is your job. And I think Adrian, for his first year, he did so well of going in and just putting the ball out there for guys that could make plays. His second year, he kind of hit that that speed bump to where it was like, okay, things are getting tough. I have to do this. I have to do that. But I think for him, his third year, he has to just understand they're going to put 10 other guys around you to make the team better. You just have to, you know, just – be there for them, teach them as much as you can, because right now he is that veteran guy that they're looking at. He's that that captain that they want to lead their team, but at the same time he has to realize when he's out there in that game, he has a lot of playmakers. He's just got to put the ball out there for them to make plays and just live to fight another down. You know, uh, we watched so many games last year where he, he had certain situations where I've had the same thing happened to me where I think that I can do certain things with my legs instead of throwing the ball away and maybe just trying to cut back inside, lose five or six yards, turn a second and three to third and 10. And now all of a sudden we're in a bad situation. So I think uh, his decision-making, the thing's going to come 
very, very just, I think that honestly, he just has to put into consideration that this third year is, is more about him improving for himself to help his guys around him. Cause he's going to have a bunch of young guys. You know, he doesn't have JD anymore. A guy that's a, that was going to be a senior mm-hmm. that they looked for for being a captain and things like that. But, you know, he had other things off the field that he had to worry about and he had to make a, a family decision. And I respect him for it at the same time. Um, Adrian just has to understand now it's going to be a lot more pressure on him. And he has to just go in with a clear mind and just understand that it's time for him to, you know, make that decision to be the captain, be that guy that everybody's looking for him to be. That's a great point, Tommy. I think that a lot of people don't understand the mind of a quarterback in that regard. So that's that's really good insight there about the trust because I definitely think there was times last year where Adrian wanted to throw the ball and hoping that the guy was at the comeback at 11 yards, but he's like, well, what if he's at 13 or what if he's at 10? And that split second can be the difference between an interception or a sack or whatever it might be. So I, I think that you're – I think you nailed it. I think that's what we'll see out of a, a, a veteran – um, Adrian Martinez this year and I think that we're also going to see I know you're a big Saints fan but I wouldn't be surprised if we see Luke McCaffrey as a Taysom Hill type right special packages getting him out there letting him do some special things because I mean he is a special talent and we need to make sure we can find ways to get him on the football field exactly and so I think if, one thing go ahead. touch bases are uh, one thing that you touch bases on um, you just got to understand that Adrian has to stay healthy this year mm-hmm. and I think uh one thing that keeps him healthy is having packages for uh, Luke and just having him go out there and go in a certain uh, certain situations. Maybe you know in the red zone to have him go out there and you know run the ball a few times just to get Adrian some breaks here and there. Just because you know he's he's hit that that, that time in his in his career where you know he has to take care of his body. Yeah, that's big time. Adrian struggled to make it through a full season healthy, and I think that. I was talking about this with, I think maybe you, this might be the first true quarterback competition that we've seen in a really long time here at Nebraska. And not that that's a bad thing. It's good to have starters that are multiple year starters, but again, no one should fear away from competition at a level of competition. That is the university of Nebraska competition only breeds greatness. The guy in front should always be looking over his shoulder because the guy behind should always want to be passing that. And that just makes a better football team. So I think we'll see a little bit more competition at that level. Cause I think Adrian's leash will be a little bit shorter this year than it was last year with Luke, not having to worry about the red shirt, but I'm excited for this year. I mean, no spring. I'm hoping it's going to be happening this year. But, uh, but Tommy, I want to thank you for joining us here on Husker Huddle presented by Sap Brothers. Um, Husker Sap Brothers is top priorities to keep guests and teammates safe. Sap Brothers is offering full service at the pump as our nation relies now more than ever on drivers and farmers to provide essentials to our communities. Sap Brothers is committed to serving you. So Tommy, before we let you go here, I just want to give you the floor. You got anything you want to say to Husker Nation? Um, we have loved watching you. We're excited to be back in contact with you here at the Husker Sports Network. I'm sure we'll be doing some more stuff together in the fall. Yes, sir. Um, other than that, I appreciate it. And uh, go Big Red, baby. We got a season. Absolutely, Tommy. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll catch you here next week. Yes, sir. Thank you. Tonight, we take a look around the Big Ten Conference. Brought to you by Sinclair Oil Gasoline and Oil Products. Fill up your life and your vehicle with Dino Care. Sinclair's top-tier gasoline. Fields, looks, throws, middle of the field, toward the end zone, touchdown, Olave! 27-yard He dodges a guy at the one and jumps into the end zone. Touchdown, Michigan! Touchdown! Touchdown, Iowa! Stanley to Amir smith Marshall. 20, 15, 10-5, touchdown, Penn State! 70-20, Poe to the 10, Poe to the 5, 
tonight. And here is Peters. Lob ahead. He's got his man. Looks like Bebe it is. Up the right sideline midfield. 40, 30, 20, 10. Touchdown. Touchdown, Illinois. The Illinois Fighting Illini. And here to talk about the Illini, Steve Kelly of the Illinois Network. And before we jump into some football, one of the Mount Rushmores of Illinois Athletics. One-time basketball coach Lou Henson passed away today at the age of 88. And, Steve, I'm sure there's a, a sadness around Champaign-Urbana today with that news. There really is, Greg. And you, um, you uh, said it very well with one of the uh, Mount Rushmore uh, people in Illinois sports history. He certainly – and beyond that, he was such a class individual. He never met a stranger. He always made you feel like you were a long-lost friend, whether he had met you or not. I had the uh, good pleasure of working many years as host and producer of his television show and some radio shows as well. I was doing Illinois games on TV during uh, much of his coaching tenure here. So he was a dear friend to me and a dear friend to just about everybody around here, not only in the state of Illinois, but the state of New Mexico, where there's a an interstate highway named after him, and he was a, the all-time winningest coach at New Mexico State and in the state of Oklahoma, which is his home state. So, yeah, some heavy orange and blue hearts uh, around here uh, this week for Coach uh, Lou Henson. Steve, he's probably the guy that every basketball coach in Illinois gets compared to, right? Isn't that who Brad Underwood's trying to emulate and then on down the line? Absolutely. He's the all-time leading uh, 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 coach in the wins here, 423 wins here at the U of I. Of course, he had the flying Illini back in the 88-89 season that many felt was the best team in the country, and most of us still feel that was the case, even though uh, they they lost in the semifinals that year to a Michigan team that uh, they'd already beaten twice. But yes, he is the he's the guy that uh, people compare uh, themselves with or would like to to be uh, mentioned in the same sentence with. He was a guy that uh, he never swore. I never heard him say a, a bad word. He had some assistants that took care of that for him, but uh, but uh, he was uh, just a great individual and will will certainly be missed. And like I said, he you look up perfect gentleman in the dictionary, then Lou Henson's picture should be there. Well, thank you for going down memory lane with us a little bit there. Steve Kelly with the Illini Network with us. All right, let's 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 turn the page and talk some football as we motor toward what we hope is a, a season of football coming at us. How much how much momentum did, did Lovey build last year in your eyes? I mean, to get that team to a bowl game, to beat Wisconsin, to do some of those things, that, that had to feel good. And I know it didn't end the way you wanted it to, but there definitely was progress, wasn't there, last year for him? Yeah, there was progress, but uh, I think there was also a little disappointment in the way it ended. So there was momentum. They let even better momentum get away from them by losing the last three games after they had the big comeback win at Michigan State to get bowl eligible. Then they had to drop their last three games, uh, a ball game to Iowa and then Northwestern and then the bowl game. Uh, so it was kind of ended on a thud. They ended up six and seven. But they did get to a bowl game, back to a bowl game, so there was some some momentum built there for uh, the fighting Illini. And they were hoping, uh, you know, they played a lot of young guys the last three years, as you can know, and so they've got some seniors this year, and they were hoping uh, with a, a non-conference schedule that is now gone that they would have had a 3-0 and start and the, the schedule – Big Ten schedule had them opening at Rutgers, so they were hoping to maybe be 4-0, but who knows what the schedule is going to look like now and how, how this is going to play out. 
Looks like the, the offense has a chance to be pretty good. I mean, a bunch of those guys are back. A lot of those names we heard from a year ago, and even getting Epstein back as a running back I think would be big. I think that's big, although Epstein has shown signs, but he's been hurt every year. So we don't know exactly what uh, Illinois is getting back with Mike Epstein, but he has, as I mentioned, showed some signs. They lost a couple of quality running backs in Reggie Corbin and Dre Brown. But um, Brandon Peters, the quarterback, is back. He had 18 touchdown passes last year, and he was banged up for a couple of ball games. They've got a couple of good receivers back. So I think uh, the offense should be better. The offensive line has been together a long time. They're experienced guys there. Defensively is all, always a question mark uh, with Illinois, at least lately. Their secondary, I think, is solid. We'll see how they do along the defensive line. You know, that's where the game's won and lost at, anyway on the offensive-defensive lines. How do you feel like it's gone with Lovey running that defense? I mean, that, that's, a, that's a lot to ask of being the head coach and a coordinator at this level. How do you think he's done? It's hard to say. I, you don't find too many head coaches doing that, so you know, it's really tough to find somebody to compare him to in that regard. I think most people would like to see him hire a defensive coordinator, but even when he had done that, it was still clearly his defense. So maybe he's cutting out the middleman, so to speak, and that he's always going to run the defense. So I guess in his mind it's worked okay because that's the way he's continuing to do it. How how transparent has Illinois been, Steve, about testing and, and what kind of positive rate they've been getting from the team? Have they been very open about that? Not open at all. Wow. Um, we don't know. Obviously, we think some players have tested positive because I, I don't think there's any doubt that that wouldn't happen. But they're releasing no numbers whatsoever. They made the announcement right from the beginning. They would not do that. And um, so, yeah, they've not been transparent at all in that. I, I don't know how that compares to what everybody else is doing, although I am seeing, you know, reports out of East Lansing and Rutgers and some other places, Columbus and places like that, where they've had to suspend uh, operations for a while. And there's some reporting coming there, but Illinois is not doing any of it. Very good. What about any policies about if there are home games, what kind of crowds they may let through the gates? Well, there's a state uh, uh, mandate right now, if you go by that, at 20%. So 20% of Memorial Stadium would be about 12,000. It seats 60,000. So it would be about 12,000 they would allow in with uh, proper social distancing. They have announced there would be no tailgating. Uh, so Grange Grove will will not be open for tailgating or the parking lots. I'm I'm not sure how you legislate that or govern that, yeah. but uh, um, that's the plan right now. So 12,000 would be the number if uh, fans are indeed allowed in. All right, Steve, if, they're, if they play 10 games, what would constitute, in your eyes, a good season for Illinois? It's going to be tough, obviously, with no non-con, as you mentioned earlier. You're right, and I think, uh, and I don't know if if they get 10 games in, does it mean if you go 5-5 five and five in a bowl game, Based on what they've done in the past, you know, being 500, I would say that might still apply. But I would say five and five would be deemed a a success because of of this, the schedule being non being conference games only, and we don't know what games are on that yet. You might end up playing Ohio State. Ohio State was already on the schedule, but you don't know if they're still on there. So uh, you don't know how those games are going to shape up 
conference-wise, but I'd say five and five, and if that got them back to a bowl game, I would think they would deem that successful. I think every coach in the conference has to be nervous about lining up ten times against the league opponents. That is just, man, that is rough stuff. But uh, I think they'll take that over not playing at all. So, Steve, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Stay healthy, and let's talk soon. Sounds good, Greg. Always enjoy talking with you. It's the Sports Nightly Preseason Top 25 tonight. They give the ball to Charbonnet. He dodges a guy at the one and jumps into the end zone. Touchdown, Michigan. Number 18, the Michigan Wolverines. Here's where where we have the uh, Wolverines, and here to talk to us about Michigan, Angelique Shingettis from the Detroit News. Great to have you with us as well. Before we dive into the team, Michigan State's obviously having issues fighting the virus, Angelique, with shutting down practices again. How are the Wolverines doing? What what have you been able to to learn? I know sometimes it's hard to get a lot of information out of that camp, but how are they doing with all this? They've actually been doing pretty well, and and Michigan has been – semi-transparent with COVID numbers. They've been uh, releasing numbers, general numbers for all the sports. And and I just found out last night there are 18 teams on campus. So, you know, not just football. And they paused four of them last night. Ice, ice hockey, field hockey, and swimming and diving and volleyball. But uh, my understanding is is the football team itself has, has actually tested pretty well. And the numbers have been low across the board. But um, but I think obviously that those will increase this week with these with these four teams pausing. But um, from my understanding, I've talked to a couple players. I, they're wearing masks during all their wor- their workouts. They are I mean, they get yelled at if they if they come within six feet of each other. So and that's been since voluntary workouts. So they've been pretty diligent. Even David Ojabo, the, the kid, the defensive lineman who was in Scotland and just returned, he's in a two-week quarantine. And, and I talked to him the other night and, and said, well, you know, are you seeing anybody? He said they just come by and they kind of wave to him from afar. And he said that they are taking this lockdown seriously. So um, not just him, but the rest of them. So, you know, we'll see how this goes. It's going to be harder, I think, once more people get on campus. And, and so it goes with parties and everything. But, but so far, so good for the Michigan football program. All right, very good. Let's jump into the nuts and bolts of this team. Shea Patterson exhausted his eligibility last year after the uh, the bowl game against Alabama. Give me an update. What's his quarterback race look like? Boy, I really wish they had had a spring because I, I thought that was going to be a really, really fun competition to watch evolve between Dylan McCaffrey and Joe Milton. And, and everybody's really been salivating, waiting for that one. And and, you know, hopefully there's a season, hopefully there's a preseason camp and we'll be able to sink our teeth into that one. But, look, Dylan McCaffrey's in the backup. He's had more experience. Joe Milton's got this cannon of an arm. He's a tremendous athlete. Dylan McCaffrey's got quickness. He's quicker than Joe Milton. But Joe Milton's got tremendous upside. So, I, you know, I think a lot of people think it's a toss-up. I think it, it favors Dylan McCaffrey at this point. I mean, he was from his quarantine, his lockdown was at home in Colorado with his brother Christian McCaffrey and his his father and his brother, and you know, they worked out every day. So that, that's pretty good uh, talent to be around on a, on a constant basis. And Joe Milton was in Florida and then returned to the Detroit area and worked with uh, former Michigan quarterback Devin Gardner. So they've both been working hard. And I, it's, you know, it, maybe it's too close to call, but right now I'd give the edge to Dylan McCaffrey. You know, the other thing on that offense that doesn't get nearly as much attention as the quarterbacks is, is all the different guys that got to put along that offensive line. How do you see that position stacking up? Because they, well, they had four starters off that line that have graduated. 
four starters are gone in the NFL, and, and I'd agree with you. I, I actually think that's a bigger storyline going into camp than the quarterback because I think they'll be okay with either of those guys. But they've got to replace four guys, and, and they've got Jalen Mayfield returning, and, and already a lot of accolades for him and, and his potential for going pro after this season. But, I mean, they've got to replace Cesar Lee, the center, who was really, I thought, had I, I thought one more year for him, even though he was a first-round draft pick, I thought he could really, really take that next step up but um, you know they've got they've got a lot of holes there, and they feel like Josh Gaddis, their offensive coordinator, said they don't feel like they're that behind the ball because they've got guys. Andrew Stuber had started; he tore his knee before the season. He was neck and neck with Mayfield, and they've got Ryan Hayes, who's had some starts as well. So they don't feel like they're starting completely from scratch. But Ed Warner's definitely got a lot of work to do building that offensive line. Again, visiting with Angelique Shangatos from the Detroit News. We're talking about Michigan. We have them at number 18 in our preseason top 25. Let's go to defense. Maybe more settled there, right? I mean, there's a lot of names back that have played a lot of football for the for Big Blue on that side of the ball. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that they, they feel really good about it. Don Brown feels very good about what he has coming back. I mean, you look at Dax Hill in secondary and Ambry Thomas. They really like those guys. And and it really, I think this team, the leadership of this overall team is coming from that defensive side. You've got Aiden Hutchinson and Carlo Kemp back on the defensive line. Quiddy Pay, who's of course getting a, a lot of a lot of preseason accolades as well, and and you know they've got some pretty good linebackers coming back. So I, I think that they feel overall good about it. It's just they still lack some depth in that interior of the defensive line, and, and that's where they need to shore things up. But. But generally speaking, I think that, that even with two new coaches, too, working with these guys, I think they feel really good about, about where this defense is going. I still don't know how Ohio State put 56 on that group. I, I don't know how that happened. Yeah, I mean, I think Don Brown is wondering that, too. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I've had a couple conversations with guys on the defense, and, and more recently with Aiden Hutchinson, and, and they've really spent a lot of the offseason, he said, since, since the start of the year, focusing on the mental approach to Ohio State because they don't feel like the talent gap is huge, so they believe it must be a mental block. And and I've covered this team for a long time. I was there when, when Michigan had the edge over Ohio State 10-2-1, and and the Michigan players are saying, we, they've got a mental block with us. And I think that's, that's what's true now. And, and Aiden actually asked him that, and he said he thought that was true, that guys were going into this game last year feeling tight, not believing in it. And they've worked with the Navy SEAL in the offseason trying to get their mental approach better to believe that they can go in and win that game. Yeah, I'm with you. There's been enough years now where it's got to be partly mental because the, there's not that big a gap talent-wise between those two programs. All right, uh, selfishly, you had to be disappointed with the loss of the Washington game. I was certainly looking forward to that one. That was a great matchup to, in my eyes for college football in week one. That has to be disappointing. I know we all understand it, but that was going to be a cool, cool matchup, wasn't it? It really was, and I was there for the last one. Uh, you know, that was a long time ago, and and it, it really pained me when I had to delete my hotel reservation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, you're right. We all understand why the changes were made, and I, I actually went back and looked. Uh, the Lexington Herald Leader had pulled a bunch of us in April and, and said, "What do you think is going to happen this season?" And I said, "I think it'll be non-conference games gone. It'll just be conference games starting in mid-October." And you know, fingers crossed that that's still something that could happen. But I. 
I think I always suspected that the non-conference games would go away, but that would have been a really interesting game. And it would have been kind of wild because Fox wants to make a lot of these Pac-12 games noon starts on the East Coast. So they were looking at that as one of those 9 a.m. kickoffs Pacific time. So that would have been kind of interesting to cover a 9 a.m. football game, for me at least, not for the uh, – yeah. <laughs> I don't think anybody else would have found it that interesting. But it's a tough place to play, and, and obviously Washington has some changes there too. But – um, it's been tough for Michigan to go to the West Coast and play well. So, unfortunately, you're right. We won't see that. We won't see Ohio State playing out West either. So, it's, 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 these are all the just the, the dominoes that have fallen because of, uh, because of this pandemic. You know, we're all shooting in the dark because we don't know the schedule. What's your gut say? Is it going to be the same nine, add one new one? What do you think they're going to do? See, I think that they're going to – I think they're going to shuffle it a little bit. And, and I think that they'll front load it with the uh, – the the division games, so you know all the the East division games will be played early, so they can have a championship game, so they can determine the champions of both divisions. And and if things are going well, then you play the rest of those games if you can. And then I mean, if you if you can't, then you've got your championship game set, and you can and you can play that. And uh, you know, I think ultimately make that television money that these these teams desperately need to support all of their athletic department programs. But I. I I do wonder about that. I, I've I've really tossed and turned on that because I, I think that it this is a maybe a good chance for them to to reassess the schedule and, and just balance it a little differently going forward for this season, you know, over ten games. All right, well we'll look forward to seeing what happens again. We appreciate you coming on as you do every time and we've got Michigan at number eighteen and hopefully we're talking about some real football when you come back the next time. I sure hope so. Thanks for having me on though. Thank you. Angelique Shingalis from the Detroit News joined us on our Sports Nightly Hotline, brought to you by the Woodhouse Auto Family, bringing you more choices in brands, locations, and service. Experience the difference. Purchase with confidence. This is Woodhouse. All right, 18. We about right? We, we, should we, we undershooting this team? What do you think? No, I don't, I don't think that's, that's either too optimistic or too pessimistic. I mean, on offense, of course, they have the big question mark of who's going to be a quarterback, whether that's McCaffrey or Milton. But, I mean, you go with a McCaffrey brother, and they're all freak athletes, so that's probably the best solution they have there. And on defense, they're absolutely solid up and down, and they always have been under Harbaugh. So they have the talent, I think, in place to be a great team. But as you hit on with with, with Angelique, the, the, the mental block, that's kind of – where Michigan seems to always falter. Last year, they went two and four against ranked teams. Now, those two wins were impressive. They beat a solid Iowa team, and they beat uh, Notre Dame, who I believe was a top-10 team at the time. But they lose to Ohio State every single year without fail. The record against them in the past 20 years, it ain't great. Uh, and that's the thing that they, they have to, to overcome. I mean, Michigan's always a great team, so I always kind of get slightly confused when there's all this castration and, and people whining about the job uh, Mr. Khaki Pants himself has done over there, Jim Harbaugh. I mean, he's done a solid, solid job. But I think one of the things that has held them back slightly is you look at the dynamism of Ohio State at quarterback and what Justin Fields can do, and you compare him with what Michigan had last year, Shea Patterson. And there really is no comparison. I mean, Justin Fields is head and shoulders a better player uh, than, than Shea Patterson was. Not to, not to be too unkind to Shea Patterson. I know the Chiefs just waived him, I think, uh, earlier this month. So <laughs> sad, sad for Shea Patterson. But, you know, to me, that, that's what Michigan has to get over. I mean, they're always a solid program. They're going to win a heck of a lot of games. They have a heck of a lot of talent. 
but it's that final gear to become that elite program. If they want to be hang with the Alabamas, if they want to hang with the Ohio States of the world, they need to take that next step. And I'm not really sure what it's going to take. It could be McCaffrey. I mean, that could be what puts them over the top. I mean, if he's able to run that, that offense that, that Gaddis envisions uh, to a T, it'll be something to watch. But that's the big question, Mark. If, if, if they can get QB figured out this year, Michigan's going to have a good season. But it'll, it'll just be a, a – if they if, if they can beat Ohio State, that would also be a huge a huge victory for them. But that's I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. We'll see. Interesting comments because under Jim Harbaugh, they've won seventy two percent of their games. Pretty good, probably not great, but pretty good. And and, and they're zero and five against Ohio State. I think he's two and three now against Michigan State. So they've been a good program, but they're not elite, and that's where Ohio State is, right? And Ohio State's up there with right. Bama and Clemson as elite. And so if, if Ohio State was an elite, just good, I think people might think differently of Harbaugh. But 72% at Michigan with Ohio State creaming everybody sometimes doesn't keep people happy. Yeah, and it's understandable from a Michigan perspective. I mean, if uh, if, if only Rutgers were Michigan's big rival, then things, <laughs> things might look right. differently. But, you know – it, it it is it is difficult because when you're comparing yourself, I mean, if Nebraska had to go head to head with Clemson every year, that would not be a fun situation for for everyone in Lincoln. But you know, you're right. It, it is really really difficult. I mean, in Ohio State, they, they just clean it up in recruiting rankings every single year. Michigan's not far behind them, but you know, right now I think Michigan's in the same league with Penn State, who got the better of them last year. And so right now they're just kind of jockeying, kind of side by side. If Michigan wants to take that that next leap, and, and as you mentioned with Angelique, I think that the talent is there, but it's just it's it's almost a mental block for them. It's just a glass ceiling, and they could this could be the year where they burst through. I don't know. We'll see. I'm not sure yeah. if that'll be this year or or maybe not even the following year. But we'll just have to see. I just think too many question marks on offense. Not sure which quarterback. Those four starters on the offensive line. I think it's going to take them a while to gel offensively, and then depending on what the schedule does, if they load them up with a couple of tough ones early, I think I think that's why I'm comfortable with where we have them at 18. I don't know that they're much much better than that. His voice will sound familiar. And Neville's gone. Bye-bye baseball. His knowledge is endless. He looked so fast. It was unbelievable. He's our Major League Baseball insider. Just ate a brownie, so I'm ready to go. Lane Grindle. Well, here's our man. He's standing at second base just on, on you know, to, to kind of get in, into the... the into the mood of everything, starting starting our interview at second base. How about that? You had a chance to do that the other night, right? Yeah, it was kind of fun, actually. Uh, I, I wasn't sure how I felt about that rule coming into it. And then, of course, right out of the gate, we get one of these games. And to be honest with you, I, I liked it better than I thought I would. I think once you get over the kind of the, the awkwardness of it or just the strangeness of it, it's just so – different than anything we've ever seen in this game before once you kind of get past that part and you actually just focus on the action on the field there's a lot going on there's a lot of strategy involved in it uh there there certainly is action and even the emotions of it are different you you score a run in the top of the 11th and you're you're kind of riding high all excited about it and and then the third out gets made and you realize oh wait they get a guy at second now too and one swing and they could walk you off still so it's really kind of a wild thing but uh, I enjoyed it I thought it was fun I think I enjoyed it more because the Brewers came out with a victory 
Yeah, no doubt. Lane, to me, it's a little bit like the college football overtime rule where the ball's at the 25 and you're immediately in scoring position where, you know, the NFL goes, plays traditional football. I've not really seen anybody bash it after a week of these games so far. I I think it's exciting. I'm glad they've done it and tried it. I don't know if it'll stick, but I've enjoyed it. You've got to be in midseason form. You've already had that. You had a rain delay. I mean, you've fallen right into it. Well, the joke is that in Pittsburgh, we always have a rain delay. So it was like right out of Pittsburgh in a rain delay. I mean, and there was kind of a crazy late inning comeback involved. That seems to always happen in Pittsburgh as well. It was like, okay, well, the season's officially started. Now we feel normal. Um, it, it really has been kind of wild to start this year. And I think we've seen a lot of bullpens around the league have some struggles early on. And I think that everybody's still kind of getting their their feet wet a little bit in, in this season there's there's going to be some sloppy baseball in the first week or so but i think as guys adjust to this as they adjust to no fans in the stand which i i i think you can say whatever you want about hey they're pros they're the best baseball players on the planet they should be able to do this without fans it's different it's a different set of emotions there's a different edge to it and, and i think there's an adjustment that these guys are are having to make playing without fans in the stands. And so I think all those things are going to take a little bit of an acclimation period here before we start seeing the best baseball that we expect from some of these guys. But um, it's been fun, and it's just great to see baseball that matters again. And, and I'm sure, you know, wrapping my arms around it and enjoying every bit of it. Yeah, no doubt. Now, it hasn't been all a bed of roses. We've had the Marlins situation with all the positive tests for them. They've had to shut that team down for a few days. Same thing with the Phillies and the Yankees because they were coming into that stadium on the back end and been affected by this as well. How do you feel like Major League Baseball has handled this? Well, I, I think they've handled it really the only way you could handle it, and that is the Marlins, you got to shut that down, and, and you got to – give them a chance to regroup and and figure out exactly who's been infected and who hasn't through that incubation period and then make the roster moves they need to make to be able to to field a competitive team. But this is partly why we had 60 guys in camp and and 30 guys on the active roster right now is because everybody understood there were going to be positive tests. The thing you're trying to avoid is what happened with the Marlins. I think Major League Baseball can handle one team having this. Uh, It's not ideal clearly had to pause their season. Some other schedules got affected and had to be altered as a result of it. But what you're really trying to avoid is three or four teams having this. And so far, things look good on the Philadelphia front. That's good news. Um, Obviously, the Yankees hadn't come into contact yet. Their schedule has just been impacted by it, uh, and that's it. But I also think this could be a wake-up call for a lot of the guys around the league, that this is fragile. And if you want to have this season, if you want to finish this season, you really have to adhere to the guidelines. And you have to be extremely careful, especially when you're on the road, that, you know, if you want to go get your Starbucks coffee, that's fine. You put the order in on the app, you go pick it up, you go back to your room. There's not a lot of exploring the city, which is what a lot of us like to do when we're on the road, going out to dinner, things of that nature. Those things are kind of off limits. And it's, it's, it's off limits for a short amount of time, for, for basically two more months. Uh, of this regular season, and I think it's important that everybody works together to get through this so we can play baseball and so we can make this happen. Lane Grindle's with us. He's our Major League Baseball insider here on Sports Honor. You mentioned that 
It's an adjustment for the players to not have fans in the stands. We're getting used to the cardboard cutouts now at the different ballparks. We're, I think we're all getting used to kind of the roar they're putting in over the PA system. Do you think before this is all said and done, you'll see some fans at the ballpark? Do you hear any mutterings about maybe letting fans back in at any point in time? I think every team desires to have fans in the stands. I don't think there's any question about that, but they want to make sure they're responsible about it, and they want to make sure that their local governments are on board with it too. And so with this thing, everything changes, it feels like, daily, let alone weekly. And to predict if we're going to have fans at some point just seems hard to do. I sure hope so. I would love to see fans be able to safely re-enter the ballparks before this season is over. I think everybody has plans in place for what that might look like and how they'll kind of roll that out should the green light ever be given. But I think most people are, are operating under the premise that we're playing without fans now and going to be playing without fans for the foreseeable future unless something changes. All right, last night, a little dust-up in Houston, the Dodgers and the Astros stemming back to their World Series days and obviously the cheating scandal that came out in this offseason. Joe Kelly was the relief pitcher for the Dodgers that was mouthing words to Carlos Correa. How long do you think this continues? Is this going to be everybody who gets a shot at the Astros this year is going to, going to by their actions, voice their displeasure to this whole thing? I think that there will be more Astros hit by pitches this year than any other team. I think that's a safe bet. Um, I don't think the fireworks we saw last night are really going to continue throughout the year. I think it'll be more subtle um, than, than what we saw last night. And I think the Dodgers hopefully got that out of their system. But look, they're in a different spot than most other teams because they played them in the 17 World Series and the U Darvish game seven and everything else that, that comes along with that. So it'll be interesting to see moving forward how this gets handled. I, I don't think what we saw last night, quite to that degree, is going to happen consistently. Um, but we saw a lot of Astros getting plunked in spring training before it got shut down too. So we'll just kind of have to see how this thing shakes out over the course of the next couple of months. But yeah, it, it was pretty electric last night. There was a lot going on in that one. Sure was. We'll see what happens tonight in, in the middle game of that series. All right, you mentioned the players. It's an adjustment getting back short summer camp to start games. Verlander gets hurt over the weekend. Kluber throws an inning, has to come out. Were some of these pitchers not ready to go, do you think, when this thing started up? What do you make of some of these big early injuries? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to know because I'm, you know, I'm not a trainer, and so I can't really speak educatedly on, on exactly how um, these injuries – transpired but the, the thing that I would say more than did they have enough time to get ramped up or did they have to ramp up too too early is just or too quickly is that they had ramped up and then they kind of shut down and then you know so you're kind of going up and down a roller coaster a little bit and a lot of these guys haven't done that some of the guys that are that are foreign players uh, some of the players that go back to Latin America in the offseason they've done something maybe similar to that uh, but somebody like Verlander, somebody like Kluber, they, they've never, you know, ramped up and then shut it down and then ramped it back up again in such a short amount of time. So um, I, I, I don't know, but I think everybody's going to be paying close attention to these arm injuries over the next couple of weeks to see if there is a trend there. And, and I'm sure everybody's going to be looking at it closely. All right, I know the Brewers have started on the road, Chicago-Pittsburgh, uh, back home this weekend, right? So you have the home opener coming up in a couple of days. I open up on Friday afternoon against the St. Louis Cardinals, three with them, and then the White Sox come to town Monday, Tuesday. 
and then the Brewers head back to Chicago to take on the White Sox for two I had guaranteed rates. So uh, a healthy amount of home games coming up for the Brewers after tonight. They have those two at guaranteed rate, then they come back for six more again. So 11 out of their next 13 after tonight will be at Miller Park. How the call's been from doing this remotely? Has it been a difficult challenge? It's different for sure, and there's there's certain plays and certain camera angles that are more of a challenge than others. Overall, though, it's been very doable. I, I think that we've been able to pull it off. Uh, there are times when the ball's hit in the air and you have to wait a little bit uh, to really know just how well that ball was hit or where it's going to end up. There's times when guys are on the base paths and you're relying on cameras and and it's not all quite there exactly like you needed to have that, that fluid call that you normally would uh, in a situation like that. So there's some moments like that. But overall, I think this has been pretty doable and, and we've been able to adjust to it pretty quickly. All right, great stuff. Thanks. We'll talk to you again next week. You bet. Thanks, Greg. Tomorrow night we'll continue our position breakdowns. We'll dive into the Husker defensive line position. Tony Tuioti will join us tomorrow night. His second year on this Husker staff has to replace the Twins. The Davis Twins has to replace Darian Daniels. But they played a lot of guys at that position. Ben Stilley would be probably the biggest name that is back. Uh, they were able to redshirt Ty Robinson and Keem Green, a highly thought of junior college defensive lineman last year. Those guys are going to compete. I'm intrigued by this position, and I don't know. And I know two of those guys, both Davis twins, Tim, got drafted. But I don't know that there's going to be a big drop-off. In fact, I think they'll be. it'll be probably pretty comparable. Maybe I'm overly optimistic, but I kind of like this group. No, I don't think you are, especially with Keem Green. I mean, he's he's such a wild card. We only saw a little bit of him last year, 6'5", 315. He's a Juco guy. So I'm really, really excited to see what he's got in store. But also you've got guys like Ben Stilley who have just loads of experience. And then you start to wonder, are there going to be some young guys that maybe step up? Maybe Tate Wildeman? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Damian yeah. Daniels is going to be great. He's a junior. Um, DeAndre Thomas is going to take some strides, I bet. You also have guys like Casey Rogers. And then Ty Robinson, he's only a redshirt freshman, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if he saw a significant chunk of playing time. And also, as you said, I mean, that defensive line, there are so many guys over the uh, under under Frost that have been rotated in to that position just to keep those legs fresh, and it, it's been it's been fun to watch, and especially that dynamic too is going to be really interesting, of course, with Tuori, the new defensive lineman, and then Dawson, who's coaching the outside linebackers now, the old defensive line coach. So you almost wonder if during practice he strays over, maybe adds a <laughs> maybe adds a tip or two. I'm sure they I'm sure they I'm sure he doesn't do that, but it, it just makes me wonder. But it'll be it'll be fun to watch for sure. Yeah, I mean, they played six a lot last year. So three graduate. The other three were, and you mentioned them all, Stilly, Damian Daniels, and then DeAndre Thomas. And so it, those three are back, so you're only looking for three others, and you threw a bunch of names out. I'm going to throw one more. I would not dismiss the polar bear. Nash Hunmacher, the hmm. true freshman from South Dakota, for getting in the mix of this thing. I mean, this guy's he's lifting North Stadium every day. I mean, he's <laughs> lifting it off the foundation. He's that strong of a guy. So, I mean, I don't think it's unheard of that he kind of cracks that top six rotation. Yeah, if you can squat like uh... – 5,000 pounds, which is a conservative estimate based on what we're watching coming out of that weight room. Uh, that's that's plenty good. And, and you're right. I mean, some of these, these, these freshmen, the physical transformations they're making in such a short time is incredible to watch. I mean, Ty Robinson was one of them. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I don't know what machine he was working on the other day. They, they put that video out there on social media of, of him just uh, just moving unheard of amounts of weight. And also just physically, I mean, they had the whole story with him and the camel or, or whatever it was. He's got an interesting kind of background. The coaching staff loves him. 
And I, I'm excited to see all these guys play. I mean, they, and they're going to get a shot, too, I believe. And on top of that, there's just a lot of depth at that at that spot, yeah. and they're going to see some time. It's good. Yeah. And so tomorrow night, Tony Tuioti will have it in hour one of the program tomorrow night. Looking forward to that, Chad, because I think that's a really intriguing position that some people may think is going to drop off the cliff because of the Davis Twins finally exiting the program. I'm not among them. And we, uh, we rattle off a bunch of names right there. And, again, if you have six – you're doing really well, and I think Nebraska has six. It's been a, they've done a nice job with that position on this staff. It's another box that they have checked. So we'll have a big show tomorrow night with that, and Teddy Greenstein also stopping by for his weekly visit tomorrow night on the program. We'll continue our top 25 countdown, as we did in this hour with Michigan at number 18. We'll move on to number 17 tomorrow night, see who that might be. And also good to hear from Lane Grindle now that they're playing games in Major League Baseball. That'll do it for this hour here on Sports Island. Don't go away. Another one coming up next.